Audio Wrangling is a sister site to Audio Angling, which allows people with angling and related topics to express them freely, as an insight into what some of the issues were in the early part of the 21st century. My name is Phil Williams, and this is a 2014 recording in which I'm going to have my say on the disappointment and disgust I feel regarding the wanton neglect, poor maintenance and current operation of Britain's iron-built Victorian piers. There are many good examples of cast iron and wrought iron leg piers stretching out across sandy beaches all around the country, and to a large extent when you talk about any one of them, much of what is said is also true of the rest. So when I concentrate here on the three I'm familiar with at Blackpool, I'm certainly not confining my criticism to Lancashire, though I'll leave anglers with more detailed local knowledge about piers elsewhere to pick out the bones applicable to their own experience. Blackpool has three similar Victorian piers. North, Central and South. I'm going to confine myself to the Jewel in the Crown, which for me has to be North Pier because of its previous long-standing angler-friendly track record. Though as I've said, there will be parallels to be drawn with piers all around the British coast. Officially opened in May 1863, it's now the longest surviving example of a pier created by Eugenius Birch, and is an official English Heritage Grade 2 listed building something which seems to have been lost on some of its owners, both past and present. The jetty, which at 474 feet in length, and the bit that anglers are specifically interested in, was added in increments between 1864 and 1867, extending the pier's total seaward reach to 1650 feet, making it a vitally important platform in sea angling terms. These days, unfortunately, that jetty no longer exists. In some ways, and again this goes for a good number of similar piers, it's a wonder the structure is still standing at all given the catalogue of disasters it's had to endure. For some reason, fire seems to be a common problem on these Victorian piers, and as you would expect, various levels of storm damage too. But North Piers on the bad luck started way back in a big storm during 1892, when a ship, the Cyrene, hit the south side of the pier causing extensive damage. Five years later, and it was Nelson's former flagship HMS Foudroyant that was making the headlines as it slipped its anchor, again in a storm, this time damaging the jetty. Captured from the French in 1758, the ship sadly ended its days stranded and wrecked for salvage on Blackpool's beach following that collision. And again in 1936 the jetty was badly damaged, as a steamer returning from Landudno cut a ten foot wide gap through the platform stranding people at the end. The important point, however, is that after all of those incidents, the damage was repaired and the structure restored. But not so after the big storm of Christmas Eve 1997, when the jetty, which anglers like myself both knew and loved, was effectively lost forever, which is the central core of my argument here, because as a listed building, this should never have been allowed to be the case. In its entirety, it should once again have been restored. But it wasn't and now probably never will be, leaving people like myself with little more than a few photographs and a catalogue of very fond memories to reflect upon. As a boat angler, people who know me might be surprised that I'm even marginally bothered about the loss of the North Pier jetty, but it's precisely because I'm a boat angler that that is the case. Lancashire's file coast, unfortunately, is west-facing, and the prevailing wind in the area comes from the west to south-west. So obviously, we get a lot of bad weather to contend with, which, when you're a dinghy fisherman, is going to knock you off your stride. Sometimes, when the weather gets into a pattern, it can be weeks and weeks and weeks without getting the boat afloat, and the season can slip by virtually unfished. 
So if we didn't have an alternative such as shore fishing, we could easily spend periods of weeks without ever wetting a line. Obviously, you don't have to fish the pier as an alternative. The beaches, the walls and even the promenades all offer some very, very good fishing prospects. But for me, back in those days, it was always the pier. And I think the reason for that is that when you walk down those steps onto the lower platform, it was like fishing on a very big, stable boat. Equally attractive was the fact that the fishing was easy too. Me not having a shore fishing background was never a very good caster, so lobbing off the pier was just what the doctor ordered. The fishing was easy in other ways too. You just turned up at the pier entrance, bought your ticket and headed off out to sea down the boardway. They even had a small tackle shop on there at one time selling bits of end gear and bait. Then suddenly, there it was, the lower platform, connected to the upper platform by a series of steps. I can't honestly ever remember fishing it in daylight. Always it would be midweek evening tides, illuminated back in those days by a tilly lamp, which while it might sound a little bit antiquated by today's standards, had the added bonus of putting out heat to warm your hands on, which was vital on a cold winter's night. Obviously, it was always going to be more comfortable standing with your back to the wind and your hood up, sheltering from the breeze and the cold. But that wasn't necessarily always our first choice. What a lot of people don't understand is that the tides in this area, although they appear to come in and out on the beach, actually flow in a north to south direction, which puts them on a parallel line to the coast. If it's a flooding tide, it's heading north, and on an ebbing tide it travels south. So in terms of holding out with a medium-sized grip lead, it was always better to be fishing with the tide rather than against it, even if that meant having a colder session. Another reason why we used to fish with the tide and if I'm honest, I'm not really sure whether it works or not, is to make use of the scent trails coming from other people's baits. When you've got people on the uptide side of the pier casting their baits in, any favourable scent coming from those baits is going to wash under the pier in the direction of where you've just cast, creating a sort of mini rubby-dubby effect. As I say, there might be absolutely no value at all to be gained from doing that, but what you tend to find in fishing is that anything that gives you the confidence to try harder results in more fish, if only on account of the extra effort that you put in. Some of my best memories have been out on the jetty on a dark autumn evening, looking back towards the prom and seeing the illuminations lighting the whole area up. In flat calm conditions you'd get some beautiful reflections on the water from the illuminations as well, but unfortunately it wasn't always calm. In fact, it was quite often because it was so rough that we tended to fish the pier in the first place, having missed out on the boat fishing over the previous weekend due to the weather. Given the choice, we'd usually opt for a high water around 10 o'clock at night, particularly if it was work the following day. The aim being to fish the last three hours up, and maybe if it was early enough or if the fishing went particularly well, an extra couple of hours down as well. In my experience, the fishing was always better from around half-tide up to top, but that unfortunately, particularly in choppy conditions, introduced another set of problems. Whoever designed the jetty decided on a height that was just sufficient to take it above the tops of the waves, around high water on a big spring tide. The problem was that if you had a bit of a sea pushing in, the tops of the rollers could actually be higher than the base of the jetty itself, which because it was made of metal gratings with diamond-shaped holes in it, would see the tops of these waves coming thundering through, sending up spouts of spray, and thoroughly soaking any poor soul who happened to be stood at just that point. Always guaranteed to be a source of amusement, 
That is, until it was your turn, because sooner or later, your turn was bound to come. Because the North Piagetti looks out onto clean sand, the dominant species over the winter months were whiting and dabs. I can't ever remember totally blanking on the pier, but I can recall situations where one or other species might be dominant, particularly if the sea was choppy carrying loads of suspended material, which whiting in shallow water don't seem to like. This in part explains the old wife's tale about whiting coming in on cold frosty nights. It's not the frost itself that brings them in, but the fact that frost usually coincides with high pressure and settled seas, which means no suspending material in the water. And in some years, you'd also see a good sprinkling small cod. It was around this time that the file course had built up an exceptional reputation for itself with big cod. In the main, these were caught over the heavier bouldery ground between Bispam and Russell Point. A few would also make it down to around the piers, where occasionally some lucky angler or other would hook one. The problem was that not expecting to catch fish of such size, few, if anybody, had any means of getting them up the side of the pier. So obviously, more big cod were lost than were caught. But I do remember seeing a photograph of one particular fish, which weighed in at something like 27 pounds. Cod, for me, never really featured in my reckoning. If one came along, it came along and that was a bonus, but if it didn't, I was quite happy to be catching dabs and whiting all the night. That said, if I nipped off to the loo or went up to the top of the steps with a tilly lamp to have a warm and some shelter while I ate my butties, I'd use the loose ends of my rod bag which I'd wrapped round the rails to stop it from being blown in to tie the rod in place, just in case. As I said earlier, I mainly use the pier as a winter venue, though a lot of people would also fish it throughout the summer as well, particularly for mackerel. I don't know what it is about the pier, but for some reason, the first early mackerel tend to concentrate themselves around the end of North Pier, and even today when fishing in the boat and wanting to get some bait, we take the trouble to motor all the way down from Bispam to try a few drifts over the area where the jetty used to be, which for some reason still attracts and holds big shoals of mackerel. I've also heard that they used to get quite a few small taupe and smoothhounds from the jetty, plus on occasions quite a variety of other species too. Back in the 1980s, I set up and ran the Northwest Record List, which I used to publish and keep up to date through a column I had in the Lancashire Evening Post. Though it hasn't been updated for quite some time, I still keep a copy on the website Fishing Films and Facts, which I referred back to myself the other day while researching some background information for this interview, and spotted amongst its inclusions a grey mullet of four and a half pounds, a coal fish of six and a half pounds, and unbelievably, a turbot of thirteen and a half pounds, all taken from the North Pier jetty. So, as I've already said, the jetty is gone, presumably lost forever. And adding insult to injury here, what remaining fishing opportunities there are on the main part of the pier have been leased to a private club. So effectively, we've also lost the rest of the pier as well. And they complain about people turning their backs on outdoor activities. How often do you hear it said that young people need to get off the computers and get out a little bit more? But to do that, you have to provide the facilities for them to use. Last year, I was fishing over in the US, and there they have purpose-built piers all over the place, complete with fish cutting, hand washing, and seating facilities. What's more, in most cases, there isn't even a charge for going on there fishing. Okay. So the angling climate is very much different here in the UK. But even so, 
Surely there must be a number of selected lucrative spots where they could put in a pier. Failing that, simply restore the existing facilities and stop putting obstacles there in people's way. I'm not even sure it's solely down to money. In many cases, local councils simply don't want anglers spoiling their image. Take Morecambe for example, a superb fishery in the summer, autumn and early winter months for plaice, flounders and dabs. And what do they do? They lay down 20 metres of heavy boulder cladding from one end of Morecambe right through to the other, so that anyone fishing at high water, while he can cast out, will not be able to retrieve the gear safely. And while this has obvious safety implications by dissipating wave actions in a big storm and stopping flooding, it most definitely keeps anglers off the prong, which seems to me is exactly what the local council want. And in addition to this, a lot of local authorities are also afraid of litigation, on the basis that if they construct a facility, then they're liable for any accidents or damage to people and property that result from it. Meanwhile, genuine people wanting to follow harmless outdoor pursuits continue to be hampered, dissuaded and generally penalised. 